Well, it's um, really it's a delight to preach this morning and uh, to be back with you. Um, I just wanted to also just say thank you so much to the preaching team that has preached so faithfully this year. Um, I always try and listen online when I'm away, and uh, I just want to thank everyone that's prepared for the morning and the evening and done such a great job, and thanks, Ed, last week for preaching so wonderfully, and uh, we really are blessed in this church with great communicators and great preaching, so I, really, um, I hope that you, you, are, you appreciate that. I'm sure you do, but it's, it's a great thing to have such a wonderful team alongside us to, um, to preach, and so it's my joy to preach this morning, and like I said, we are launching this um, um, a series around Christmas called Emmanuel, God with us. We're looking at the incarnation and what that means. And so I want to look this morning as a kind of an introductory way as we, we're going to look at this over the next four weeks, is what does it mean for us to believe in the incarnation? What does it mean? And I mean, Christmas is a great time, and I'm sure you've got all your family traditions, uh, and I don't want to get involved in an argument about whether this is the proper time for Christmas or not. Okay, that's a little bit irrelevant, okay, because the fact of the matter is we celebrate Christmas now, all right? So um, just let's put that to one side. I just want to say whatever your tradition, you might have a family tradition where uh, Christmas is especially meaningful to you, and it's a delight to get together with family. And the main purpose of getting together is to have a meal together and to um, swap gifts just to rekindle family connection and to appreciate love for each other. That's why we celebrate. But really we are celebrating something far more wonderful than that. And we want to look at this thing of what the incarnation means. And so just to tell you where I'm going, we're going to look at a scripture. I'm going to make some comments out of the creeds that have been the church has thought about for hundreds and hundreds of years and why that is so. And then I want to give you five things at the end of this message that I really trust you will think about and meditate on over Christmas time because they are the foundations of what we hold to as Christians. And we want to be sure that we are rooted in a really good understanding of who Jesus is and what he's done and why he came to the world. Amen. And so let's have a look, uh, if you want to turn in your Bibles, if you've got them on your phone, this also will come up um, on the screen. Matthew chapter 1, we're going to read Matthew's account, verse 18 to 23. And Matthew says this, this is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what she's conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins." All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophets. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel. And Matthew adds in brackets, which means God with us. When Joseph woke, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. 
What a wonderful portion, isn't it? So encouraging. And so right here is the heart of what we are celebrating as Christians, far more than just uh, time for family and gift giving and all those kind of things. The, the real joy of Christmas is that we celebrate as Christians that Jesus is Emmanuel. Jesus is God come down to earth to be with us to live with us, to understand what it's like to be human. This is the great joy, the greatest gift of, of, of Christmas time that we celebrate as Christians. And so Matthew starts by pointing us to Isaiah uh, in, in this prophecy uh, where he says, quotes Isaiah the prophet saying, God is going to come to be with us and he will be called Emmanuel. So this is the simple but profound truth that we now celebrate as Christians, that God is with us. Now, I don't know about you, but uh, ever since Jesus came and died and was resurrected from the dead, this, this concept of God with us has been one of the things that has caused the most confusion. And uh, people have thought about this and tried to wrestle and understand what does this mean to say that God came, the eternal God came and humbled himself, became a, 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 in a human form as a human being, and lived among, amongst us. It is something that the church has debated for thousands of years. What does it mean? How do we understand this? How could an obscure man from Galilee, of all places, this God-forsaken place, Galilee, in the middle of this tiny little place called Israel, with dubious origins, ever be the Son of God? And people have thought about that, and many people still stumble over that today. How can that be, that the eternal, uncreated God comes in a human form to earth? And so, as I said, people have thought about this, and in the first few centuries after Jesus' resurrection, it probably was the thing that most concerned the early church fathers, to understand what this meant, the fullness of who Jesus was and who Jesus is and who he really is as God come to us. And so it was a time of great debate in the early church, the first three or four centuries, and people had opinions, and they wrestled, and they disagreed, and they wrote some things down to try and encapsulate their understanding of what God was revealing to them as they went forward. And so I really want to share this with you this morning to help us. If you've ever wrestled about these things, if you've ever thought about these things, you're not alone. People have thought about this for a long, long time. People have tried to put into words the understanding of what this means. And it's not a simple thing that you can solve in five minutes. And that the testimony of that is that we've been thinking about this for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Many people trying to understand and wrestle with what this means that God is with us. And so some people in the early years focused on the divinity of God and could not quite believe that he could become a human, and still be holy and pure. And so this was particularly because I've mentioned these things before, because of the influence of Greek thinking and Greek philosophy. The Greek people regarded anything that was physical as fallen, as less than what God intended, and flawed, and sometimes even evil. And so Gnostic Christians who were influenced by Greek thinking considered all material things, physical things, ineffective, unspiritual, and fallen. And therefore, they did also hold to the fact that you could know God as the eternal God. You could have special hidden knowledge. And remember in our letter in, in, in Corinthians that we've been studying, gnosis, the love of knowledge, the love of wisdom. They considered that you could know God in this way, but only if you were specially chosen. 
Only if you had a special divine spark that God had given you, and not everyone had this divine spark. And those that had the divine spark could know the eternal God for themselves. And that was the highest thing. And the rest of us, if you didn't have the eternal spark, if you didn't have this divine revelation, the super spirituality, you were just, well, tough for you. So it was esoteric, it was exclusive, and it was um, mystical in a sense. And because some people thought like that, they, they said, well, Jesus couldn't have had a physical body because physical bodies are evil. They are fallen. You remember when Paul writes and he encourages Christians about their sexual behavior. He says to them, it does matter what you do with your body. It does matter who you sleep with because actually if you are a disciple of Jesus, you are a spiritual being, you are a unified person and don't put your body into the body of a prostitute if you are a man because how can you do that as part of the bride of Christ? Remember? Because Greeks said it doesn't matter what you do with your body. You can worship at the temple and be all spiritual and you can sleep with a prostitute. It doesn't matter because the two are separate. Jewish thought has always been we are unified. We are one being. What happens in our bodies affects profoundly our spirit and our soul and what we do with our lives. We are unified beings. We're not cut up into small pieces, body, soul, spirit. Yes? And so the early church wrestled with it. Some of these people say, well, Jesus couldn't have had a physical body because our physical body is, is fallen. So he only appeared to be human, but he wasn't really. He was some kind of sort of spirit being that moved around. So that was the one, one uh, heresy in the early, early centuries. And the Gospel of John addresses that head on. Remember John chapter 4 verse 3 says this, Every spirit that does not confess that Jesus has come in the flesh is not of God. So John addresses it head on in the early centuries when he writes his Gospel. He says, no. If you think that Jesus was some kind of mystical being and not human, you're not from God. He was fully God and fully man. All right, so that's the one emphasis. And as we will see, if we deny the real humanity of Jesus, it cuts across real basic crucial issues of faith, which we're going to explore as we go forward. And so some people in the early years, they spoke about the humanity, the divinity of God at, ex at expense of his his humanity. And then there are others that focused on his humanity at the expense of his divinity. And they said, well, if Jesus was a fully human, he could not possibly have been at the same time the eternal uh, God. It's impossible. So their, their logic went like this. All material life has a beginning. Jesus was conceived. He was born. God might have lived in him. We, they could believe that. But since he was human, he was somewhere beneath the one true eternal creator God. He was a lesser being. He was perhaps the create the highest form of creation, but he was still less than the creator. He could not possibly be God. And so in the first four centuries, there were various councils that met and debated these things where these new thinkers converted philosophers from Greek, a Greek background and strong church leaders all put these things um, in, uh, under debate and tried to wrestle about who God is what does it mean for God to be in one person? And they debated these things back and forth. And so eventually, we know from the second century that they landed on a very simple statement, which we call the Apostles' Creed. And here it is. It should come up on the screen. We don't know who wrote this. 
But some, the Catholic tradition says that each of the apostles made one of these statements. Uh, we don't know that for sure, but this is the Apostles' Creed. And this is what it says about Jesus. Very simple statement. I believe in God the Father and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, from whence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. Right, so this is the first statement of faith that we have from the early church around the second century. People struggling, trying to put into words what they believed in terms of who Jesus was and what he came to do. Do you notice that it's more about what Jesus did for us? It doesn't concern so much his relationship with God the Father or with, the, with God the Holy Spirit or the substance of who he is. Do you notice that? It doesn't address those things. It addresses purely who he is and what he did for us. And so this still created more debates, ongoing debates, and there was this tug of war between different points of view until the end of the second century when a guy called Arius wrote down what many people had been thinking, and this, this became to know, be known as um, the Arian heresy, and he, he lived from 250 to 336 AD. And basically what he said was that Jesus was a created being, he was subordinate to God, and in that basic sense, he was unlike God because he had a beginning. So he was not eternal. So this is what Arius said. And so the council, another council met in a place called Nicaea. And you know where I'm going. We're going to talk about the Nicaean Creed. So people debated with Arius and um, uh, listened to his views, which he had written down. And in, in the end, they dismissed them as unorthodox, as heretical. And remember this, I don't think ever anyone sets out to be a heretic. It's sometimes we must remember that. People were wrestling with these things. They were trying to understand things. They were trying to, for themselves, contemplate these amazing truths and write them down. And so I don't think Aris intended to be a heretic, but his thinking led him down a path which was wrong. And we need to be careful of that because you can be one degree off here and 100 miles down the road, one degree is a long, long way. You can be grateful that pilots are very fussy about one degree. Because if you leave London and you're heading for Australia and you're one degree off, you're not going to land in Perth. That's for sure. And this is the thing about theology. This is the thing about really understanding who God is and what He's done so that our lives keep on track as we go forward. So the council met at Nicaea in 325 AD where they dismissed uh, Arius' views as heretical, and in response to that, they wrote down and expanded on some of the ideas that already were there in the Apostles' Creed, and they came up with what we now call the Nicene Creed. Listen to the language. It's absolutely beautiful. This is what they said. It should come up on the screen. I believe in the one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father, before all worlds, God of God, light of lights, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man. And from that point on, it continues very much like the Apostles' Creed. 
Can you see the expanding of the thinking? Can you see how they are now wrestling? Okay, what does the substance of God mean? What does that mean for the substance of God to be in one person? And perhaps uh, Helen is going to unpack some of these things going forward in the next couple of weeks. What does that mean? What does that mean for us? What difference does that make to us now living in the 21st century? And then this kind of had another step forward in the 5th century. So it's 500 years people talked about this, right? 500 years. They debated and disagreed and fought. And there was a guy called Athanasius. You might not have heard of him. But here I want you to read what is called the Athanasian Creed, which again enlarges on something of the understanding of the early church around who Jesus is. And here, for the first time, we start reading about the Trinity. Listen here. We worship, again, the language, so beautiful. We worship one God in Trinity, and Trinity in unity, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the substance. For there is one person of the Father, another of the Son, and another of the Holy Spirit. But God, the Godhead of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, is all one, the glory equal, the majesty co-eternal, such as the Father is, such is the Son, and such is the Holy Spirit. The Father uncreated, the Son uncreated, and the Holy Spirit uncreated. The Father incomprehensible, the Son incomprehensible, and the Holy Spirit incomprehensible. The Father eternal, the Son eternal, and the Holy Spirit eternal. And yet they are not three eternals, but one eternal. And also, as also they are not three uncreated, nor three incomprehensible, but one uncreated and one incomprehensible. It's beautiful, eh? Absolutely amazing. What a rich, rich, rich understanding of who Jesus is. And from that point on, it continues to uh, speak in much the same way as the Apostles' Creed. And then, specifically, Athanasius addresses the incarnation, what it means for us to understand Jesus come as Emmanuel. And he says this, For the right faith is that we believe and confess that our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is God and man. God of the substance of the Father, begotten before the worlds, and made of the substance of His mother, born in this world, perfect God, perfect man, of a reasonable soul and human flesh subsiding equal to the Father as touching the Godhead and inferior to the Father as touching his manhood, who, although he is God and man, yet he is not two, but one Christ, one, not by conversion of the Godhead into flesh, but by taking of the manhood into God, one altogether, not by the confusion of substance, but by the unity of persons." For as the reasonable soul and flesh is one man, so God and man is one Christ who suffered for our salvation. Amen. I mean, you, I understand this is, this is the difficult language. I get that. But what I'm trying to say to you is do you see the richness of what it means for us to believe in Jesus as God come down to us fully God, fully man? And you might say, Aunt, that's all very wonderful, but what difference does that make to me this morning? Well, I want to say to you, it makes absolute difference to you and your life. As you can see, we have uh, inherited much from the early 
church fathers that fought for these things, that argued about them, and much of how we understand Jesus now rests on the hard work that was done by these people hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago. We need to acknowledge that. But I want to say this to you this morning. It is so important that you understand what Jesus has done for you, because in times of crisis, when things are tough, we default to our deepest understanding of who God is. We all do. And that's how we get through crisis, for better or for worse. And I've seen over 30 years of pastoring now. Let me give you some plain examples. When people get sick, they have one of two reactions. God, I have done something wrong. I do not deserve your blessing in my life, therefore I am sick. I have, there's something sinful in my life. There's someone I haven't forgiven. And that's why I'm sick. Now that can be true, but not all the time. But that can be someone's default position that as soon as something unpleasant happens in their lives, oh, it's God is not with me. He's left me. There's something wrong with me. And it becomes introverted and it becomes very unhelpful because that's not the truth of the gospel. The truth of the gospel is whatever you are going through in your life, there's a God from heaven who's come down. His name is Emmanuel. His name is Jesus. The, the arms of the everlasting Father are underneath you, whether you are sick, whether you are well, whether you are prospering, whether you are unemployed. Jesus is there holding you up. That's the gospel. And too often we can think, oh, when we're doing really well, oh, somehow, you know, we're in a good place with God because He's blessing me. His blessing on your life has got nothing to do with your performance. It is all His grace. And so it really, really does matter what you think about Jesus and how you understand what it means for Him to come down. And here are five things that I want to encourage you over this month to reflect on these things, to reflect and meditate on the profound truth of the incarnation and what it means. The first thing I want to say to you is that the incarnation demonstrates the love of God that passes all understanding. The incarnation, the fact that Jesus came down fully God to us, demonstrates the love of God that passes all understanding. We all know John 3.16, yeah? For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. It is unfathomable. We can't begin to imagine what it means that God would so love us as human beings that He would send Himself. It's not got to do with anything about us being lovable, <laughs> that we're nice and good and we deserve His love. It's not because we asked Him because we didn't ask Him. It's not that because we sought Him because none of us were searching for Him. But because He is God and God is love, that love moved Him out of the substance of who He was to come and be one of us. And that expresses his love for us, which is beyond understanding, which is beyond measure, which is beyond comprehension. That is a love that passes all understanding, that he would come down out of love to be with ordinary human beings. And we can't ever begin to understand and calculate the cost of that commitment to God to come and be amongst us. And writers and artists and poets and songwriters have for centuries thought long and hard how to express that. They've tried in countless ways to express the inexpressible love of God as revealed in Jesus Christ. And if you love art, you can see different paintings. And if you love music, there's music being written for centuries trying to put into words to encapsulate this incredible love that God has for us that he would come down and be one of us. 
I want to quote one, uh, one hymn. Ever heard of a guy called Charles Wesley? Great hymn writer, the 1700s. He wrote this amazing hymn. It just starts like this. Let earth and heaven combine, angels and men agree, to praise in songs divine the incarnate deity. Our God, contracted to a span, incomprehensibly made man. It's beautiful. Words are important, man. I want to I encourage you, think about what you say. Think about how you put into words what you think about Jesus. It's so important. It encapsulates so much. Don't be afraid to do the hard work of really wrestling for yourself. What does Jesus mean to me? There's Charles Wesley, just like in five lines. He's thought about it. I want to encourage you to think about it this Christmas. What does that mean for you? That Jesus would so love you that he would come down and his love for you is incomprehensible. Secondly, the incarnation dem demonstrates the humility of God. I want to really encourage you to think about this. The incarnation demonstrates tangibly the humility of God. Jesus, the eternal son, co-equal with God, all-powerful, eternal. You know, Jewish people believed that you couldn't even look on God. If you looked on his glory even, you would be struck down. That's why the Bible talks in the Old Testament of God walking away from people that they only saw his back because they believed so profoundly that the glory of God was so magnificent you couldn't look at it and live. And so Jesus lays aside all of that glory. He takes on the limitation of humanity and he's born in obscurity and poverty and hardship by every human standard. He's born into that environment. In other words, the God that's omnipotent, all-powerful, becomes a baby completely dependent on others for his care, lives as babies live, is fed by his mother, is cleaned by his mother, is cared for by his family, the omnipotent God, the omnipresent God, took on the limitation of time and space and had the experience of what it means to grow up from a young age and have to grow in wisdom and, and, and learn as a human being. That's what we believe. The eternal glory that I've tried to speak about, which we can't even understand or begin to comprehend, takes on the veil, the Bible says, the veil of flesh in human form. And it says in Isaiah, it says, and there was nothing beautiful about Jesus. He, he wasn't the most good-looking human being. We were probably, you know, it's not like, I don't know who your favorite guy is, ladies. Favorite Hollywood star. Well, Jesus was nothing like that. You would have walked past him on the street and not have noticed him. There was nothing beautiful in his form to say, oh, this is the Son of God. Nothing. Just an average Joe, average guy. And I want to encourage you that you meditate on what that means as you look at the baby in the cradle this Christmas time. As we celebrate together with carols and nativity and fun. And you think about that demonstration of the humility of God, what does that mean for you? I love these things are all contained in the scripture. I plan to read this before Johnny planned to read this. Philippians chapter two, such a demonstration of the humility of God. Verse one, therefore, and remember this is encouraging all of us. Remember Paul writing to the Philippian church and saying to you, you and me as God's church, therefore, 
if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded. All of us, the same mind, the same love, being one in spirit and as of one mind. Then how does he say we do that? Well, he's quite plain. He says in verse 3, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others more than yourself. Do not look for your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. That's how we live it out. That's what it means to be like Jesus. Not just about me, my family. As long as we're okay, screw everybody else. This is not the Christian way. The Christian way is exactly the opposite. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset of Jesus who being in very nature did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. And we are called to live in the same way. We are called to have a laying aside way of thinking, that we lay aside our own selfishness, our own selfish desire, and we live for others. That's the pattern for us. We are to have the same mind as Jesus. That's how he lived. We are called to live in the same way. What does that mean for you this Christmas? What might God be challenging you with in your life as he's challenging me in my life to lay aside some things so I can live for other people? What does that mean? How can we, each of us this Christmas, best consider the interests of others and how we value others and their interests above our own interests this Christmas? Yes? And like I said, there's so many things competing for your affection over Christmas time. If I can appeal to you, don't overspend. Have a small turkey. Don't, you're going to throw half of it away anyway. How many of you like turkey curry on day three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten of January because the turkey's so big? Do you hear what I'm saying? Live for others. Maybe just withhold a little bit in some areas so you can bless someone else and give something else away this Christmas. You don't have to buy a hundred presents, maybe just one nice one to show someone that you love them. Come on now. We get seduced by this thing every year. Don't be seduced. Be generous. I think we've done well. Right, here we go. Then moving on. Number three. Think about this this Christmas. The incarnation validates all of creation and human beings in particular. It validates, it celebrates For God took on flesh and blood. He became like us. He called us brothers and sisters. Doesn't that blow your mind that the eternal God calls you brother, sister? That's what the scripture says. The being of universal eternal one who created all that we see calls you and I brother and sister. He calls us friend. He he, he ate our food. He blessed our children. He walked on the roads that we walk on. And it's helping us to see that even though creation is fallen because of sin, it's not evil. It's to be celebrated because it's been made by God. And so I would encourage you to love food. It's a blessing. Love food. 
Love the trees, love animals, love the environment, love the whole of the universe. It is God's, it is His, it's to be celebrated and enjoyed. Love the ecosystem, love the world, and love people. I'm frothing, sorry. Love people. Surely we should come to those things with a sense of absolute joy and awe. This is all made by our Father. Yes, it's fallen, and we are waiting. We are groaning with all of creation for it to be redeemed on that final day and where all things are made new. And there will be no suffering. There will be no pain on that final day. But until then, we wait with every other believer with groaning, with expectation of Jesus coming back and renewing all things. Come on. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. Let it, every physical thing, material thing is still sustained by the God of our world and the, uh, the God of our Father. And the God of this world is an imposter. His name is Satan. He is the, he's the enemy, the opposition of all who God is. And he one day will be thrown into eternal damnation and we will celebrate when that day happens. Then there will be no pain. There will be an end to evil. And so, fourthly, the incarnation marks and ushers in the beginning of our redemption. That's why it's so wonderful. It ushers in and marks the beginning of our redemption. Jesus lived at the dawn of a new age, which he calls the kingdom of God. And that's why he says, this kingdom, this new thing is at hand. Do you not see it? It is happening now. It's not far away over there. It is here. The kingdom of God is here. This new kingdom that I'm bringing is here. And the dawn of it is demonstrated in the fact that I have come to you. And so Jesus comes as the new Adam, the second Adam. And he teaches us and helps us to live in the righteousness of this new kingdom. Although the world and the system of this world is still operating by a dog-eat-dog, me-first habit of lust and pride. As long as I'm okay, I don't give a damn about anyone else. That's how our world lives. And Jesus says we are to live in exactly the opposite way. Love is to be our most outstanding characteristic of our lives, that we truly love people. Love God. Love His church. That his church is not at the bottom of the ladder of all my priorities. No, we love God. We love his church. We love our families, absolutely. We love our neighbors. We love even our enemies. Get your head around that. Some people in my life that have hurt me, and I'm like, I don't know, Lord Jesus, if I can love them. But your word says I must love them, and I have to. I'll do my best by the power of your spirit to love. Come on. It's not easy. Jesus touched lepers. He fed the hungry. He cared for the downtrodden. He ate with sinners. He worked tirelessly to do good, to show compassion, to alleviate suffering, to proclaim the good news of the new kingdom. And we are called to do the same. Every one of us as a follower of Jesus is called to do the same, even though it costs us our lives. And so I want to encourage you, how best can we love others this Christmas? How best can we point others to the one in whom redemption is found? Jesus, God with us. Emmanuel, the baby in the manger. How can we do that? And lastly, the incarnation shows us that God is present in all the difficulties that we face. This should really encourage you. All the difficulties that you face, the incarnation 
demonstrates and promises that Jesus is with you. And this is the great tension for anyone who follows Jesus in this present world. We are saved. We are initiated into his new life. We receive the Holy Spirit. And therefore, we already have in our lives experienced the new beginnings of this new kingdom. But we do this in a world that is not yet redeemed. And because of that, we suffer. That's why we suffer. Let me put it to you like this. We constantly live in the tension of being generous in a world that is given to greed. That causes suffering in your life. When you're trying to live in a way that's generous to others and the world just says, you get as much as you can for yourself. Suffering. You have to think about every decision that you make. What are you going to do with your money? It causes a tension that we live constantly in of meeting injustice with kindness. <laughs> that's what it means to be a Jesus follower. When people are unkind and unjust, you meet them with kindness. You meet them with forgiveness. You go the extra mile. <laughs> is that easy? No, this is what it means to be a Jesus follower. It means that you keep on helping people that take advantage of your hospitality and your help. <laughs> That's what you do as a Jesus follower. Even when people take advantage of you, you recognize it. You don't let it get you down. You say, Jesus, I'm doing this for you, not for anyone else. You see, I'm living for eternal rewards, not for rewards of these people. And that's why we have to live in the tension of looking, ways, looking for ways to bless people that actually speak disrespectfully and unkindly to us. How can I bless this person? To live as a Jesus follower in this world that is not redeemed causes tension in your life, causes suffering in your life, and Jesus said we ought to expect that because we are not citizens of this kingdom. We are citizens of another kingdom with another king. And his name is Jesus. And that changes everything. And so the early followers of Jesus took great comfort in knowing that because Jesus lived amongst us as a human being, he faithfully and fully understands every struggle that you're going to go through in your life. This is the great promise of atheism. Life is chance, and if you get sick and you suffer, tough. It's the universe playing its dice, and you just happen to get a one, and that's just, that's your luck. Get on with it. What did Richard Dawkins say, painted on buses in the early 2000s? God is dead. Don't worry about it. Enjoy your life. The great promise of Christianity is that there's the eternal, loving Father who is intimately involved in your life, who understands everything that you go through, every single nuance of every situation, because Jesus himself lived like you as a human being and went through all of those things and identifies with you perfectly in every way. That's the difference. And Hebrews puts it like this, chapter 2, verse 17. For this reason, Jesus had to be made like them, human beings, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, and he is able to help everyone who is being tempted. And we are tempted in every way, aren't we? That's what it means to live as a Jesus follower in this world. 
to face temptation, like I've said, in so many areas and not to give in, but to live for others and live for Jesus. And so I hope as you reflect on these things that it really would minister to you that Jesus is fully able to give you exactly what you need in all your trials and all the distresses that you go through in your life. To finish, I just want to quote a, a lady called Jill Caterini. I was reading, doing some reading this, this week, and she, she wrote this beautiful paragraph when she was reflecting on the incarnation that we celebrate at Christmas time. And she says this, The incarnation is the only story that touches every pain, every lost hope, every ounce of our guilt, every joy that ever matters. Where other creeds fail, Christmas, in essence, is about coming poor and weary, guilty and famished to the very scene in history where God reached down and touched the world by stepping into it. The great hope of the incarnation is that God comes for us. God is aware. Christ Jesus is present, having come in flesh, and that changes everything. I trust you'll reflect on that this week. You know, Paul says this in 1 Timothy 3, and he affirms all of what I've said this morning. He cries out, he says this, Paul, Beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great, that he appeared in the flesh, he was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. And we can affirm with Paul, yes, in our spirits. That is who Jesus is. That is what he's done. So God bless you all as you meditate on these things at Christmas time. The incarnation which shows the love of God that surpasses all understanding. The incarnation which demonstrates the humility of God and validates all of creation and every human being. The incarnation that marks and ushers in this plan of redemption and assures us that God is present in every trial and hard thing and challenge that you face in your life. Think on those things. Meditate on them. Let the truth of those things transform you from the inside out. Let them transform you so that you see the world differently, that you see your place in the world differently. Let them transform you that you value yourself differently and you value other people differently. And you see what God has for others as you wait, together with all of God's children, everywhere for that final day where Jesus comes back in glory and makes all things new. And we live for that day. And if we die before that day comes, we get to be with Jesus anyway. It's all good news. That's the good news, the joy of Christmas and what it means. We're going to sing. Johnny, come. Can we just sing one more song as a demonstration, an act of this pouring out our hearts for what Jesus has done for us as he's come to make himself fully human. Let's stand together.